going to ask you this morning to open your, your Bibles to First uh, John. First John, particularly chapter 2, and today we're going to look at verses 18 through 21. So we've been going through the epistle of First John, and um, we've been seeing that through the epistle of First John, that John has been using various tests to uh, validate a believer's salvation in Christ. We've seen already that he's written of a test of character, he's written of a test of obedience, he's written of a test of love, a test of truth. And because he was writing the churches in Asia to protect them from the emerging heresies of Gnosticism and other false doctrine, John is now going to show that there is a clear distinction, a clear distinction between those false teachers, who, by the way, he's going to identify as antichrists, and those who advocate for false doctrines, and those who hold to biblical truth, the believers in Christ. And I think it's really important for us. I think it's really pertinent for us, to be perfectly frank with you, because we're in a day and age of such a proliferation of false teaching in the name of Jesus. Everybody's, you know, many people learn the buzzwords of, uh, you know, praise the Lord, Jesus, salvation, get saved, all these others, but they integrate falsehoods in it. So, you know, I've said this many times, if you had a glass of pure water here, crystal clear, and you didn't know that just a few seconds before I showed it to you, I had dropped a certain amount of arsenic in it. It still would look crystal clear, but that water is now polluted. And it may be comprised of 90, 95% or 98% pure water, but that 2% of poison will kill. And that's what we see going on today, and we saw this going on in the day of uh, 1 John. As I mentioned to you, this is written about 90 AD, so it's coming at the end of the first century. All the other apostles are dead. They've been martyred for the faith, all of them. John is alive, and he's he's an older man now. So let's look at the Word of God, verses 18 and 19. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen, and from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they, are, uh, that they all are not of us. And so we see here in verse 18 the first use of this term antichrist. So I think the first thing we got to look at is what defines an antichrist, right? Um, during John's lifetime as an apostle through the first century, Right? There had been several antichrists that had emerged during that time. If you think uh, originally, one of them were the Roman emperors. It was at that time, beginning with Nero, that emperor worship began. Nero was, of course, the one. He only ruled in Rome for about four or five years. He was the one that ended up killing the Apostle Paul. He ended up killing the Apostle Peter, but he introduced the concept that the emperor was the son of God. 
and that the emperor was deity. So as the church began to progress, when the first persecutions of the Romans came against the Christian church, the Christians were accused of blasphemy. What blasphemy? That they denied that Caesar was God. They denied that Caesar was God. So many of the Roman emperors were antichrist. And there were also several rebellions in Jerusalem all the way up to the year 70 AD of false messiahs that emerged, false Christ that came out, and they'd get their little band of followers. And matter of fact, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, one of the primary reasons that the Roman legions set a siege to it was to end once and for all all these many rebellions that were coming up. But you had a lot of people saying, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. John makes a statement here in verse 18. He says, children, this is the last hour. And the last hour of the final days began after the resurrection and the establishment of the church. That started the last days. We entered into the last days. And since then, believers have been living in the expectation and in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what we want to see. We want to see the return of Jesus Christ. And we know also that Scripture speaks of a final antichrist, a final one who's going to emerge on the scene, one who is indwelt by Satan himself, one who will deceive many, one who's going to burst on the scene. He's going to be a great orator. He's going to be able to give great speeches, and he is going to be able to solve world problems, problems that we haven't been able to solve in in many times and in many years. He's going to have great charisma, and he's going to be so convincing that the world is going to want him for their soul leader. And he's going to be more than happy to oblige. And this term of Antichrist only appears here in the epistle of John. And really the definition of Antichrist is one who opposes Christ or one who tries to step in to the role of Christ. He is the Antichrist. He's seeking to replace Christ. That's what that term really means here. Now we see the concept of the Antichrist going way back in the scriptures. You know, Daniel told of this. He saw the rising of a great leader in Jerusalem who will take over the temple of worship. And he's going to burst on the world scene and he's going to wreak havoc. Daniel 9, 26, 27, speaking of this Antichrist, says, Then after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing in the people of the prince who is to come. This is the Antichrist. will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even the end where there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed, poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, I wish I had the chance to exposit all of that, but that is the 
uh, prophecy of the Antichrist. He's going to come. He's going to merge on the scene. He's going to make peace. He's going to come with great power and great authority. Paul called this one the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, um, verse 7 and 8, he says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one, there's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end to his appearance. Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, 24, the one who will bring the abomination of desolations when you see the abomination, and that is the Antichrist taking the throne in the temple and declaring himself God. Revelation 6.2 sees the rider on a white horse who is given great, great, great power. Revelations 13 calls him the beast. Turn, if you would, in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter sees him here. In 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning with verse 1, Peter says this about false teachers and antichrists who will emerge. He says, but false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, And because of them, the way to truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And you see that before this great Antichrist appears, there are going to be many smaller Antichrists, plural, emphasis on the plural, There are going to be many false teachers that are going to emerge in the world. And I like the way that that Peter says this here. He says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They don't stand up and say, here's the false teaching. What they do is they take the word of God and they manipulate the word of God in such a manner. And then subtly and surely they introduce heresies that come upon them. Notice verse 3 there says, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Man, the amount of false words that are going out today. People promising everything imaginable under the sun. You're going to prosper, you're going to have health, you're going to have wealth, you're never going to get sick, you're never going to get all these other different things. And of course, when you do, it's your fault. It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. And also history shows us that there were other great leaders in the line of the Antichrist. You think of people like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, right? Men that were able to mobilize nations and do phenomenal things. But in their zeal and in their greed for power, they brought Tremendous crimes against humanity and wiping out the church at every attempt. 
You know, one of the things that always amaze me all the time is, right, we're hearing a lot today about atheism, 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 right? But if you go down through history and you look at atheistic societies, you're going to find something all the time. You're going to find atrocities, tremendous atrocities. I mean, just go through the book. Hitler killed 13 million people. And by the way, that doesn't include all the people, all the civilian people who died because of World War II in Europe. So the number goes up exponentially. But he killed 13 million. We know he killed 6 million Jews. He killed 7 million non-Jews. Stalin. It is estimated Stalin killed 40 to 50 million in Russia in sheer paranoia. You look at Mao in China. It's estimated he's killed over 60 million people during the Cultural Revolution and the subsequent years that followed. And by the way, in China, the lion's share of those were Christians who would not bow the knee. And the list goes on. Look at Pol Pot in Cambodia, a small little nation, killed 3 million people in like a year's time. Boom, just wiped them out. And you could go back and back and back through history and you will see the atrocities attributed to people that advocated a godless society. Now, the United States of America, 61 million babies. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 61 million babies. This cannot go on. This cannot go on. And so we see that throughout history there have been antichrists that have risen, that have commandeered nations, that have committed atrocities. But here in our text, in John chapter 2, what John calls antichrists, plural, is referring to the false teachers that were emerging in his day. And primarily, they were those who denied the master. They denied the truth of the word of God. Verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour, just as you heard, Antichrist is coming. They had heard that. They heard that in the prophet. They heard that in the scripture. You know they had to have heard that from the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter. They knew that an Antichrist was coming, but he goes on to say, even now many antichrists, plural, have arisen. And from this we know that it is the last hour. And let me tell you something. There's a proliferation of antichrists today. And you talk about last hour, final days. I believe we're in the final of the final days. So what John is going to do is he's going he's to compare the two. He's going to compare the, the false teachers to those that hold to a true and living word. He's going to compare the little antichrist to the believers in Christ. And right here in verse 19, he gives us the first measurement. Notice what he says here in verse 19. He says of these antichrists, he's going to define them. They went out from us, 
but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. I want to look at that in a little bit more detail. First of all, it begins with the word they. That word connects immediately back to verse 18, right? Speaking of the false teachers, the little Antichrist that John mentioned. Note John's statement that these false teachers, they went out from the church. That's rather interesting, right? They didn't come from the outside and penetrate the church. They came out from the church. And, those, and they, they have people that follow them, that leave the faith, that abandon the faith. And this is the classic case, by the way, of all false teachers, right? They're going to start in the church. I mean, if you read some of the David Koresh and you read some of these other guys who emerged, they all came out of the church. They all knew the scripture. They all could quote chapter and verse. Right? So they start inside the church, as Peter said, uh, introducing seductive heresies. And typically these come, and at first, they look and sound just like everyday believers. Right? They may be in the church and may be going, praise the Lord, hallelujah, do you see what it says in the Bible over here? Oh, brother, oh, sister, they love the buzzwords. By the way, that's one of the dangers of the church. Don't get culturized into Christianity. That's why we call for men and women to be born again. And we call for men and women to be saved in new birth, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they come in and they integrate in the church. And the, our Lord Jesus Christ gave a great illustration of this in the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13. You know, when he talks about that somebody planted their field and the workers in the field went out and they noticed something one day. They said, Lord, there's, there's tares among the wheat. And when the tares, now I'm a city boy, so I don't know anything about farmers. I had to ask Jason about this one day. What is a tear? What does it even look like, right? But my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but my understanding is, is when they grow, you can't really tell them apart. It's until the wheat gets mature that you notice that there's tear. So in the wheat and the tares, he's saying, look, somebody planted good wheat. He planted good seed, but an enemy came and he sowed tares among them. And the, and, and the workers say, well, do you want us to remove the tares? And what's the response of the Lord? No, 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 no. Let them grow together. And then at harvest time, I will say to the reapers, pull up the tares. Bundle them together to be burned. But we'll have the wheat. You know what? That happens in the church. There are tares in every church. I don't care how biblically sound it is, there are tares in every church. The only issue is we don't know who they are. Remember, they look and sound in many cases just like the best of all believers. And so these come into the church. And what was happening in John's days where there were those in the church 
who learned Gnosticism, and now we're advocating for Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that Jesus could not be a human being, that anything good could not have physical matter. So they gave all these aberrant type of definitions. Well, Jesus was a spirit being, and then he took the body of someone else, and then right before he was crucified, Jesus departed, and that person was crucified. What does that do to the gospel of salvation? That says that Christ could not pay for sin, that Christ was not a human being, that he was not both God and man. Therefore, he could never make atonement for sin. But oh boy, it sounds so good. And you know and I know there's many groups out there who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The other thing they taught was, well, listen, let me tell you something. You really want to be spiritual? Man, you have to have this super-duper spiritual experience. Well, what is the experience? Well, you, you, you just got to go in yourself and, you know, and then God's going to take you up and he's going to give you all this revelation. And we hear this every single day. People telling you need this experience or that experience or, you know, running, chasing experience. Listen, we believe, as I was sharing with you earlier, the word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for all matters. All scripture is inspired by God, meaning God breathed and is sufficient for instruction, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man or God, uh, woman of God may be well equipped for every good work. So they were coming into the church bringing other doctrines. And as I mentioned to you earlier, they know just enough of truth to be dangerous, right? And we see that happening today. You know, Paul, when he was leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and he was going to go back to Jerusalem, if you read that scene in Acts chapter 20, they're begging him, don't go back to Jerusalem, man, and you're going to be arrested. Somebody came up and said, hey, I have this vision of you being shackled in bonds. Don't go, don't go. And Paul says, I have to go. The Spirit of God was urging him on. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, he makes an amazing statement to those in Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's what false teachers do. They speak perverse things to draw men and women away. Now, there are two additional points that John makes in this verse that I want to highlight for you. First, I want you to note, and I think I mentioned this, that John states that these false teachers came out of the church. That's the first thing I want to call to your attention. They came out of the church, but he makes another statement with them. He says, but they were not of the church. They came out from us but they were not of us, right? And this is very important because there are times that they must have sat, sounded like genuine believers, had knowledge like genuine believers, but were not born again. Why? Because knowledge does not save. God saves. I have a terrible fear. And that fear is this. How many people are going to be in hell that have a boatload of Bible knowledge? 
The Bible doesn't say that's what saves you. God saves. Jesus saves. And so you'll see some of these people had a boatload of, of biblical knowledge. And secondly, John makes the statement here that they went out from us that it might be shown that they are all not of us. Simply put, really simply put, their departure was not of their own accord. I want you to get this. Their departure, this unmasking, this unmasking of the false teachers was done by God to demonstrate that they are not of the family of God. And this unmasking through the Holy Spirit just goes to show you that God weeds his own garden, right? He plants beautiful flowers and, and beautiful bushes. And, and just like, look, my wife, and well, I'll say me. She's a lot more diligent than me. But we're not like, you know, Bob and Mary Green Thumb. We kill more than we bring to life, to be perfectly honest with you. But we do go out there occasionally and look at the front and pull up some weeds, right? And say, well, that... That don't belong here. Well, God is that great gardener, and he does that for us. And then there's another important aspect to this. Right here through that, you see the sovereignty of God in his church. The sovereignty of God displayed. Because what they do is, although they try to pull away the elect, they can't. They can't pull away God's elect, and there's a reason for that, right? And the reason is this. It is God who holds his people. You see, you hear a lot of talk these days about Satan this, Satan that, Satan's doing this, Satan's doing that. Oh, Satan. A lot of times I think most people think that Satan is sovereign and God's the one running around going, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? Oh, there's war in the Ukraine. What am I going to do here? Oh, look at Russia. Look at Iran. Look at this. Nah, man. Satan only does what God allows him to do. And notice here. Here in this verse, you see the sovereignty of God. You see this great principle of the great doctrine of perseverance of the saints. The saints, the believers in Christ, hold to the faith because it's God who holds them. Not because there's a certain strength in us or a certain resiliency in us, but God who holds us. One of the great creedal statements of the church is the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And this document was written at a time when it was written at a time to affirm the beliefs of the Baptist church at the time because many churches that originated in the Reformation during the 1500s, well, they started to fall away again. And so a bunch of bishops and pastors got together and said, we're going to make a creedal document. This is what we believe. And the London 1689 Baptist Confession is one of them. Look, listen to what it says regarding the perseverance of the saints. 
It says, those whom God accepted in the beloved, meaning in Jesus Christ, has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but will certainly persevere in that state to the end and be eternally saved. This is because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, meaning God doesn't change his mind on those who he calls unto salvation. And it goes on to say, and therefore he, meaning God, continues to beget and nourish them in the faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all of the graces of the Spirit which lead to immortality. Simply put, those whom God called to himself, those who God saved, God keeps, God holds, God leads them in repentance, God leads them in love, God leads them in joy, God brings them to himself, and when they are threatened, it is God who intercedes on their behalf through the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the Word of God teach us that we have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession for the saints? Doesn't the Word of God teach us that the Holy Spirit groans for us with groanings too deep for words? And he searches the heart and the mind. Doesn't the word of God tell us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose? Doesn't mean that the path is easy. Doesn't mean that the path is rosy. Doesn't mean that there's no tears in the path. Doesn't mean that there isn't pain in the path. What it means to what God started in the life of a believer, God will achieve. And God will bring to fruition for his glorious end. So verses 18 and 19, we see the characteristics of the Antichrist. Now he contrasts that in verses 20 and 21 with the characteristics of the believer. Look at verse 20. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is in the truth. As John writes the churches and warns them about those who have departed from the truth, he states that believers are the ones that have an anointing from the Holy One. The Holy One clearly is Christ. And that anointing comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the mark of the believer. Know ye not that you're the, uh, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you? That's directed to the believer. And he states that believers in Christ have two characteristics that mark them. One is the Holy Spirit. And let us never, never minimize the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us into truth. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and discernment. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us the deep things of God that no natural man can know. And the other that the believer has is the Holy Spirit, and the believer has Jesus Christ. 
Christ. The one who imparts the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These two things keep believers in truth. I want to make that point. These two things keep believers in truth. Listen, we are born again of seed which is incorruptible. But that seed is built on the propositional truth of the gospel. We do not believe fairy tales. We do not believe myths. We believe the truth of God's word. And we get anchored on that truth. Notice John tells the church that true believers have an anointing. The King James talks about it has an unction. Unction means a a power from above that comes down. True believers have that power from above. That power is the spirit of truth. The anointing refers to the Holy Spirit as that divine teacher, the, the the revealer, the revelator of truth. Notice what Jesus says here, John 14, 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 16, 13, Jesus said this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truthful. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Notice in verse 21, John reminds the churches of the truth and that there is no falsehood, no lie in the truth. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus even said it himself, did he not? Jesus said what in John 14, 6? I am the, wait, I am the, he didn't say I am a truth. He said, I am the the truth, and I am the life. The gospel is not another truth. It is the truth. And Jesus prayed in Acts 17, 17. If it wasn't the case, the Lord wouldn't have prayed, prayed this prayer. In his great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The whole word of God, all of scripture, the truth of the gospel is not one of many truths concerning God, but rather it is the whole truth. And let me tell you something. It is that truth that every soul must answer. Let me say that again. It is that truth of the gospel that every soul must answer. Do you respond to the truth of God? Do you respond to Christ's call to salvation? Do you respond to the word of the Lord? Or do you negate the word of God? Do you go, ah, I don't need that. I don't need this. I don't need the other thing. I have my own truth. That's a big thing today. But every soul will give an account for that truth. Every single soul. There are two points even here that John brings out. First, true believers have the Holy Spirit, and because of that, believers can know the truth of God. 
This is the beauty of being a believer in Christ. The beauty is we don't hold ourselves. But rather, Christ holds us. And he does that through the new birth. Believers are born again. Listen, I like the way the Apostle Peter writes. He says concerning this new life, he says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, notice, who are protected by the power of God. For a faith, through a faith for a salvation to be ready to reveal, be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 23. Paul states it this way, that believers are the workmanship of Christ. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. Even Jesus stated this in John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. Listen, in contrast to the Antichrist that came into the church to steal, kill, and destroy, believers are born again in truth, And believers are the workings of Christ. Believers are protected by the power of God. Believers persevere in faith. All this because believers belong to Christ. In the verses that we looked at today, John has shown us the contrast between the Antichrist, those who deny that Jesus is Lord and those who spread false teachings and true believers in Christ. Notice that John stated that the Antichrists start out in the church, but then they go. But true believers remain in the church and hold to the truth. Antichrists are unmasked by God. Believers are validated by God. And believers persevere in the truth, in the faith, despite trials, testings, and persecutions, because Christ holds the believer. Martin Luther, in 1529, wrote a hymn based on Psalm 46. We sing it to this day. It's called, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that song, he writes this. And though this world with devil fills should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He goes on to state, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth 
abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There is always the recognition that there are opponents in the faith. There's always the recognition that this world is filled with devils. But if you are a believer in Christ, then the good news is that God holds you. And you know what the better news is? He will not let you go. But, and here's the but, 1 John says, believers are validated by God. And they're validated. They give evidence to the new birth of Christ in them. Just like the Antichrist give evidence to their false teachings, to their seductive heresies, to their pride and their denying of Christ, believers do the complete opposite. They give glory to God. They validate the new birth. They give glory that God holds them and sustains them all the time and never ever is going to let us go. Paul says of these antichrists in 2 Timothy 3.13, he says this, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and themselves being deceived. So the question is, which characteristic describes you? Which characteristic describes us? Are we counted among the believers? Does our life bear evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, of the new life in Christ, of the anointing and the unction that has been given us? Do we hold to Christ? Do we have a love for Christ? Do we we love him in such a manner that God is the greatest affection of our lives? But do our lives give evidence to the other that there is no new birth? That the same sins that had us bound before we made a profession or walked an aisle or did whatever it is we do, that those same sins still keep us bound? Which one is it? My prayer is that no one, no one, no one here would be counted among the deceived, among the imposters of being deceived that they are something righteous when in actuality they may be unrighteous. And there is good news. And the good news is this. Christ saves. And Christ is in the business of taking imposters. And Christ is in the business of taking the deceived and making them new men and women and new believers in Christ. Christ saves. But you got to call to Christ. You've got to confess your sins. The Word of God says 
we confess our sins, he's faithful and trust. You know, you know it's one of my favorite verses for salvation, Isaiah 1.18. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Come, let us reason together. The holy, righteous God says me as a sinner, that he wants to reason with me? He says, come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though your sins be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. I pray that nobody here would disregard the word of God. When the eternal living God says, come, let us reason together, you know what you need to do? You need to come. And you need to confess. My sins are red. Red. Scarlet. God, can you make them white as snow? And the answer is an emphatic, absolutely, yes. But come and repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we gather on this day, Father, we pray that your word would go forth with power. Your word would go forth with authority. Father, your word tells us that our hearts are deceitful and they're wicked above all else. Who can know it? And you answer that question in the next verse, Lord. You say, for I, the Lord, know the heart. And I render to all men according to their deeds. I'm so thankful that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because you wanted to reason with me, Father, that I'm not going to receive the deeds of my heart, but I'm going to receive your mercy. Father, I pray no one would leave this place, Lord God, deceived. No one would leave this place as an imposter. No one would leave this place thinking, I got more time. As I shared last week, we don't know when soon will not be soon enough, Lord God, or may be too late. But that, Father, Lord God, if there be any here outside of Christ, that, Lord, you would prick their hearts, draw them unto yourself, and bring them to the place of repentance and faith, that he would, they would even come forward after the service and say, hey, I've decided to give my heart to Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those that are here, believers, some of whom are persevering through the darkest hours of their life, may they leave here, Lord God, reminded you hold them. You hold them. 
You'll never let them go. My Father, Lord God, that the joy of their salvation would quicken their hearts, Lord. Father, we thank you for this and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.